Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. An important part in the emerging field of psychedelic medicines is the use of technology to gather and disseminate data. Today, we welcome David Champion on Gateway Sessions. David is the CEO of Maya Health, a company focused on providing psychedelic practitioners with the information and technology they need to scale psychedelic healthcare smartly and safely. Maya is designed to leverage data and analytics to power and empower the ecosystem of researchers, policymakers, therapists, and practitioners at the frontier of mental health care. None of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. David, welcome to Gateway Sessions. It is such a pleasure to connect with you today. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. And I would love for the audience to get a little bit of your background. You have quite a fascinating life story. Would you be willing to share with us how you got to where you are today? Yes, it's a long story, so I'll keep this one brief. But my journey started in Papua New Guinea, where I was brought up for four years. And then by way of Portugal, Scotland, for much of my teenage years, and then Kenya, which is actually where my mother was born and three generations before her in my family. So I spent time in Kenya, which is still a very dear place in my heart, and then studying architecture at Cambridge in the UK really began my career. I was introduced to Daniel Liebskind in New York, one of the famous architects of our time, and was fortunate enough to be offered a job working with his team on the Ground Zero Master Plan in Manhattan, which was a huge <laughs> moment of humility and honor for me to skip se several steps in my architectural career. And I learned so much specifically from him and from my college mentor, tutor, on the topic of phenomenology, which for those who don't know is how we experience things and how that impacts our emotions, our communication, the way we think, the way we act, and so many other aspects of the human experience. And that's quite different from most architectural training, which focuses on how a building looks, often just from the skyline or from the street. And I, I mentioned this because as I turned my career to technology with the thought at the age of 22, 23, that I might be able to impact a few thousand people with a building, I might be able to impact millions of people with thoughtfully designed technology, specifically on-screen experiences. And so that led me through various companies as an entrepreneur. And in 2014, I began paying attention to the cannabis industry that was emerging in the US. And that 
led me to move from New York to Colorado, which is where I live now in Denver with my wife and two-year-old, and working on a software platform as a solution for this nascent cannabis industry was a bit ironic because I've never been a cannabis user myself, but I did see the potential that if our society could engage with very important healing plant medicines, then we could probably have a deeper relationship with the planet and with the resources that grow on our earth. One that's hopefully escaping the paradigm of stigma from the past. Cannabis, along with other psychedelics, have been demonized in society, mostly for political reasons and economic reasons, but certainly not for medical or psychological reasons. And as I started to read and learn that, I became committed to helping society engage with cannabis in a new way with better user experience, more in, more engaging education, more transparency. And then what that led to is me recognizing that data can be a language that helps us all understand more. And when I speak to data as a language, I'm where many cultures, subsets of society, demographic groups might have their own perspectives or their own ways of speaking about a certain topic like this, like psychology or medicine, what have you. They're often We are all often using the languages that we've been brought up into. Data is a sort of universal language is the way I see it. And so in 2018, I was closing that chapter with that company, which was called Baker Technologies. And I became a campaign lead here in Denver to help this become the first city to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms, meaning psychoactive or magic mushrooms. And with the success of that campaign, I turned my full focus to psilocybin and other psychedelics, and then started a nonprofit to to fund research into psychedelics together with Johns Hopkins University. And that led to a realization that it was time to start a new technology company that can help gather structured data for us all to understand these psychedelic medicines and how we can engage with them in a more fruitful, safer, more scalable way for society. And that's where I have my full focus now. Thank you so much, David, for this overview. I truly have a fascinating life journey. And I love what you said about data being this language. And of course, you are the co-founder and CEO of Maya Health which is a software company for practitioners of psychedelic assisted therapy. And your focus is on laying the foundation for psychedelic medicine to scale safely and ethically, all the while emphasizing the importance of data. And I would like for our audience to understand your mission and also the parameters of how Maya does business. For instance, before we get into the data part, but you are a Colorado Public Benefit Corporation. What does that mean? A public benefit corporation is a legal entity or a class of business. So most people will have heard of LLCs or C-Corps or S-Corps, I should say. And a PBC, Public Benefit Corporation, is a type of corporation. It means that in our bylaws from the moment we established as a business, stated that we are going to put equal attention on public benefit, 
how it can really help the world as we will put attention on shareholder returns. And this was a big decision because initially, having recently co-founded another organization as a nonprofit, there was a question in my mind, should we build this technology company as a nonprofit? Should we build it as a regular company, tech company, meaning a C-Corp or an LLC? And there were pros and cons to both approaches. And I found the public benefit corp approach was the happy medium, the compromise between the two. And I say that because a nonprofit is wonderful for telling the world very clearly that we're not here for personal gain. We're here to help other people. Whereas a corporation often is established for gain, often can be doing good things for the world, but it's also established in our society. That means there's going to be a profit uh, motive. There's going to be return for the team and for the shareholders and investors. Whereas the, and so it's very important as an operator in this emerging nascent psychedelic community that we're communicating clearly to the community why we're doing what we're doing. And that is for public benefit. However, to build the sophisticated software that we believe we need to create for the world to accomplish our mission, we have had to raise over $5 million to date and we're raising more as we speak. And it's very challenging to raise that much capital in a short period of time as a pure nonprofit. And so the Public Benefit Corp allows us to raise money from investors and promise them a return should we, should we be successful in our approach, but also have every investor sign to an agreement that, yes, they might be able to expect a return financially, but they're also contributing to this public benefit mission that we have. Mm -hmm. Excellent, David. And you just mentioned it, you're actually raising money as we speak. Can you tell us where Maya is at right now and what you're working on for the near future once you've also raised the additional funds? Great question. We've spent the last couple of years very focused on the foundation of this business and this technology platform. And thankfully, I've had some experience with trial and error, and I've made many mistakes over the four different technology companies I've founded or co-founded in my career. And one of those mistakes, I believe, was grow sales, meaning grow how the number of clients or partners that we have using the platform as quickly as possible from day one. And I think this is a motive that many technology companies have. And it's actually generally promoted by the investors because the more quickly that a technology startup has customers, therefore revenue, therefore tangible metrics of growth, the less risk there is for investors or perceived risk. And in my last company, we grew very quickly. We were actually breaking some records in terms of how quickly we were scaling and getting the software out there to people and they were paying for licenses to use the platform. And what happened was that we were behind the scenes building technology, i.e. coding so quickly to release new features just to meet the demand of 100, 500, 1000 paying customers. And these are businesses with quite stringent needs from our solution. 
And again, this is the last company, Baker Technologies, that I worked on. We found that we were releasing features so quickly that we didn't have the time to necessarily build those features in the best possible way for longevity and for future stability and scaling. And so two or three years into the business, it became very hard for us to continue growing at the same pace because there was so much what's called tech debt or technology debt in the code base for us to then go back and fix or rebuild or remedy. And I learned that lesson. I came into the first stages of building Maya with that lesson very front of mind and also just recognizing that the psychedelic industry, quote unquote, barely even existed in 2020 when I started Maya and where there were some investors pushing me to grow our sales and start bringing in revenue and scaling that revenue. I really pushed back on them and continue to do that today and saying that we have time. We have time for this industry to unfold. We have time to grow as a business. But first and foremost, we have to build the technology in a conscientious way. And that means spending the extra time, which can be weeks or months longer to build code correctly. And I'm very grateful to our product and engineering team for having that same belief system. And engineers often love nothing more than to build really high quality code. They often get pushed by their managers or executives to just sacrifice quality in order to move quickly. And there's always a balance to strike there. But thank you for letting me give a slightly longer answer to this particular piece because it's so overlooked. And many investors actually don't even know that this is a problem in the technology space. And so it's, I take responsibility in sharing this with the world, hopefully to inspire other entrepreneurs to share the same message with their own investors and request the patients, request a longer term view rather than just the, the grip on fast profit margins and that kind of thing. So where that leaves us today is that we've spent about two years building a very high quality code architecture elements in our technology stack that most startup companies don't even get to for several years into the business and when they're much bigger. And so we've established this foundation I'm feeling very proud of, and that's now putting us in a position where we can start delivering the platform to the world. And we're doing that as we speak. The round of funding that I mentioned that we're raising right now is $2 million. We have just over a million of that already committed, and that's allowing us to spend more time in dialogue with therapists, meaning re regular therapists who might have any number of different modalities, as well as therapists who identify as doing psychedelic work. That can include also integration coaches who help people to integrate the lessons that they might have learned from a psychedelic journey, as well as clinics such as the legal ketamine clinics in the US. And there are many clinics that are starting to prepare to deliver MDMA therapy for PTSD, as well as therapies including or, or treatments, including other psychedelic compounds. And finally, retreats. So retreats or organizations that are operating usually outside of the US in countries like Mexico, Costa Rica, Jamaica, and then Netherlands, Spain, and other parts of the world. And these, these different types of psychedelic practices are all ideal partners for us 
because all of them share one thing in common, which is that they want to help people. And the best way they can see how to do that is to measure the quality of services they're offering so they can learn from those, so they can create more transparency with their clients or patients and really learn together how to keep improving psychedelic treatments, which are still such a a new field for professional services. Excellent. Thank you, David. And what is really important for that is here's that's where the data comes in, right? Because so far it's not easy to locate any centralized type of data. And please feel free to correct me at any time. But what you admire do is basically you have a software that allows practitioners to create custom protocols and then track the progress of the patients. And you're also able to aggregate this data in an anonymous way and then make it available to the global community or the community that that you've built and also to research institutions, which then can be used also to further studies. Have I given a good bird's eye view of what you're doing at Maya? You have. Thank you. And I can tell that this is a topic you think about in your work. Maybe before I answer, would this be a good opportunity for you to share a little more of the work you do in integrated mental health and perhaps how you're thinking about data in your work and the organizations you help? Absolutely. So I am engaged in a variety of different ventures. I'm a writer, I'm a published author, I'm a podcaster. I have another podcast that focuses mainly on longevity and biohacking, the superhumanized podcast. But in my function for Gateway Sciences, I'm basically the global research and innovation leader. And we, amongst other, are invested in research, for example, with Johns Hopkins, with breast cancer patients who are administered psilocybin prior and then after surgery. We also are invested in the longevity and mental health space as part of the what we do with regards to mental health. We have a clinic, the first clinic that we opened in Santa Monica on Montana Avenue in Los Angeles called Gateway Clinic. We're poised to open the next one in Sedona very shortly. And part of what we offer is ketamine infusions. And that has proven very efficacious, not only at our clinic, but in a lot of clinics worldwide where it is legal, such as it is in the US and all 50 states where ketamine can be used legally when it's prescribed by a doctor. And it's been proven very efficacious to help with conditions such as treatment-resistant depression or PTSD, anxiety. In my own case, I also underwent a course of treatment and it's been really extremely helpful to substantially lower my baseline of anxiety, which I had been dealing with pretty much all my life, what I remember. And it also gets used for chronic pain or when people are dealing with migraine. And there's great promise with regards to suicidal ideation when people are caught in these 
thought loops or emotional loops, it has been very helpful to get people out of that state and give them a renewed energy and interest for life. So that's just a very basic overview. And what's also very important for us, the most important thing, obviously, is to provide a safe surrounding medically, emotionally for the patients, for the clients. And a big part of that is also to be able to rely on whether it's studies, whether it's the, we've developed our own protocol, of course, but there's certain parts of protocols that have been used for a few years that have proven effective, whether it comes to dosage or also how to create an optimal environment. So data is very valuable to help optimize the treatment in general, and then also to be able to fine tune it for each individual biologically, as well as emotionally and cognitively. So well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. So thank you really for sharing that. And I'm so looking forward to deepening our relationship between our organizations and hopefully supporting this work you're doing. Absolutely. It would be wonderful to explore the synergies. Agree. And coming from the research background that, that you have and the work that you mentioned with breast cancer, I, a nice synchronicity there is that you worked with Johns Hopkins and we're still in the process of panel analyzing the data that we received from the very first study that I designed was through the nonprofit Unlimited Sciences. And if people want to see more about that, unlimitedsciences.org. And it shows the study approach that we took, which was a worldwide observational prospective registry, which is an academic way of saying we asked a lot of people around the world if they would like to contribute their mm -hmm. psychedelic journeys to the science. And so this became what I'm, I believe is the largest psilocybin macrodosing study in the world with over 8,000 participants. And it took me the better part of 2019 to design that study in collaboration with some of the most well-known psychedelic researchers, Roland Griffiths and Matthew Johnson, Albert Garcia, Mary Casamano at Johns Hopkins. And I also interviewed dozens of psychedelic practitioners who are doing this work in the real world and received input from somewhere around 100 like-minded professionals to give input and really tell me what they wanted to learn from a study like this. And I think because of that thoughtfulness, the worldwide audience felt that and were willing to participate and saying, okay, I'm going to have a psychedelic journey with psilocybin. And this might have been in a clinical environment or a therapeutic environment or a recreational environment or a ceremonial environment. We weren't, I should say, we were agnostic to those types of characteristics. And the goal was to capture that information from participants uh, with informed consent, which means that they were aware that they were contributing their data to scientific literature and that their personally identifiable information would be expunged, meaning mm -hmm. permanently deleted six months after the data had been analyzed. And so there is some level of security there. And the findings we're still parsing through, and we will be publishing on this over time, but we've already, from preliminary analysis, discovered really interesting insights, like two of the participants mentioned that they had Tourette syndrome, and they actually both mentioned that they had experienced a dramatic 
reduction in their symptoms of Tourette's because of that psilocybin journey. So now there's further academic or scientific study happening to look at psilocybin for Tourette's syndrome. And that's a great example that I like to mention, which is when you look at what's happening in the real world amongst the millions of people, it's estimated roughly 80, 85 million people have self-identified as having used psychedelic. Now, I still think that's a gross underestimate because many people are not comfortable offering that information about themselves. But imagine being able to look at what 85 million people are experiencing with these compounds and to learn from that rather than assuming that through a 30-person academic clinical study or clinical trial that we could learn anything, anything close to that much information. And this is where I believe that deductive science, meaning academic science that controls for a single variable, is very important and it's valuable for answering a specific question. But it also implies that we know which questions to ask. So you have to wonder where Matthew Johnson, Johns Hopkins, where did he learn that, or where did he develop the hypothesis that taking a psychedelic could help somebody with their smoking addiction? And he probably learned that from sort of broader social or professional network and hearing anecdotal stories of people who had been smokers either quitting or reducing their intake because of a psychedelic journey. I actually used to be a cigarette smoker myself and a single psilocybin journey completely had me quit overnight for two and a half years. And stories like that from the real world inspire scientists at universities as well as biotech companies to do controlled deductive science. But that's a really inefficient way for scientists to learn what they should be studying. And I think we're reaching the point where the number of new questions that are being asked by scientists has been slowing down because the number of hypotheses they can generate just from organic word of mouth discovery has been pushing. And again, that's just the perspective I have. I could be wrong on that, but it seems to be that way. And that's why what the industry is looking for is a safe, secure, responsible method of looking at real world data by inviting millions of people to participate in a data gathering initiative. And that's what we do with Maya. We do that right now through our relationships with psychedelic practitioners so that if a ketamine clinician working at a clinic in LA or a psilocybin retreat leader running a retreat in Jamaica, etc., they have the sort of professional ability to ask their participants to participate in this kind of a program with a sense of trust and safety involved. And so our approach has been to go to these professionals, offer them a software platform that lets them automate a lot of the work that they currently do. Anyone in your audience working in the therapeutic or clinical field knows that it's a bit of a responsibility to ask patients or participants to complete a form during the intake process, such as the PHQ-9, which measures symptoms of depression. It's not just a responsibility, but it's also a tremendous amount of additional work. To do that in the current paradigm using current tools takes about five hours of admin work per patient or participant. And that's in combination of 
setting up using the forms to use, uh, setting them up and programming them into some kind of survey tool that, or form builder, and then sending emails or having people complete those forms when they come through the intake process, which often requires reminders and additional scheduling and a lot of attrition or lack of compliance from the patients. And then once the data is coming in, there's even more work to actually make sense of it. And, and as a responsible medical or therapeutic practitioner, there's an onus on these professionals to then derive some value from that effort that they've asked their participants to engage in. And that becomes so much work that often, more often than not, these practitioners just don't have the time to do it because they're busy, they're overworked, they don't have the teams or finances to support that level of rigorous data capture. And that's really where we started is saying, look, we can help automate a lot of that, all the stuff that you're trying to do today, we'll just automate it for you in a really secure and HIPAA compliant platform. And then you'll have more insights, you'll have more data to learn from, which hopefully can then help you offer more personalized care to the individuals based on what you're seeing in their charts. And the piece that started to become very valuable that we've learned over these last couple of years is patients and participants themselves want to be able to see how their health and their well-being and their life quality are trending. And mm -hmm. I think that wasn't the way in the past. A couple of decades ago, an individual would go to a doctor or a therapist and just ask to be given a pill or a session and hope that they're better afterwards. But in this world of quantified self, which is having people track their diets and their sleep and their meditation and their, <laughs> their, their breath work, there's a strong global movement towards people, individuals taking responsibility for our own well-being and actually being engaged in that process. And so Maya helps people to become more engaged in their own healing journeys as well. That's absolutely wonderful, David. And I think it is a truly a powerful thing, an empowering thing to take responsibility for your own health, to have the agency to also communicate to your caretakers, to your healthcare team, that you want and need access to your own data and not just blindly trust and take whichever pill you're prescribed. Be an active participant and creator of the life experience that you have here and which is so anchored also to our health, our physical, our emotional, our mental, our spiritual health. I what you just said, for example, about meditation brings up something that I have seen in previous interviews of yours, where you said that you use ketamine to meditate on specific topics or contemplate ideas. I'd like to know a little bit more about this, especially in front of the backdrop of that these kinds of medicines, psychedelics or dissociatives like ketamine can be used for healing on the one side, and that's what they are being prescribed for in the places where they're illegal. And then, of course, there's also the elevating or optimizing aspect of these medicines, whether it's for better cognitive function, becoming more connected to empathy and being empathetic, becoming more connected to community yourself or nature. So anyhow, I'd love to hear more about how you have used ketamine to meditate on specific topics or contemplate ideas. I'm very excited that you're asking about 
this topic and I'll just back to the notion you were bringing up a moment ago and then return to to ketamine. So I have a framework that I like to return to often, which is actually one that I developed with my partners while working on unlimited sciences. And this was healing, learning, expanding. And I believe that on a microcosmic level, as individuals, we go through that progression as we start to engage with any kind of altered conscious states. And that might come through a compound or it might come through breath work or meditation or having a child or many other sort of forms. But psychedelics specifically can be a catalyst for healing. And that's what's being shown pretty clearly by the academic research, as well as anecdotal evidence. And through this healing process, often people find that we can then learn something new about our minds. And that's because we're not simply taking a pill covering up symptoms. We're going deeper to unroot the origins of these challenges in our life, whether that be trauma and the anxiety and depression and pain and so forth and addiction that might come from it. And that allows us to learn from a perspective of the witness, which is what's discussed in mindfulness practices. Often it's that rather than being in the clouds, the sort of egoic conscious experience, we can now look from above the clouds, see the blue sky and the sunshine and recognize that there are clouds passing by, but they're simply passing by. And that again might look like craving for a cigarette or a drink or a drug, or it might look like the the symptoms of depression or anxiety as they emerge, but again, pulling back, being the witness, and therefore learning something about consciousness and therefore the mind. And I think what that can then unlock is the expansion phase, and expansion can come in many forms. One, to speak to the sort of optimization, which one way of thinking of that is creative cognition. And this is a topic that someone in the community called Laura Dawn researches and speaks very intelligently to. She was actually just on our podcast, the Psychedelic Therapy podcast that we produce, if anyone's interested in learning more about creative cognition. And what that I think is doing is through neurogenesis and synaptogenesis, which, sorry to use technical jargon there, but that's essentially allowing more neurons to grow in the brain and then for the connections between those neurons, the synapses to convey current more effectively and also between different regions of the brain than we do in a normal sober waking state is allowing access to something called divergent problem solving. You also think of that as lateral thinking. So the ability to solve a problem with new approaches, new mindsets or thought patterns. And with that capability, the mind can solve for problems, but also just experience life in completely new ways. And I do think there's a very important potential for psychedelics in society in having people who have either overcome some of the traumas or challenges of their past and the mental health worries in their life to then have a sort of healthy neurological state that can then focus on problem solving or maybe it's also going it, this also is equally relevant for people who are completely in the middle of mental health challenges and still have the capability of solving problems and bringing 
more opportunity to the world. And I think that where we're at as a in the development of psychedelic research, it makes sense that we're very focused on the healing phase because the world is in an unprecedented state of trauma and anxiety and disrupt. But as we start to hopefully emerge from that and maybe using psychedelics and other novel treatments, we can help more and more people to find mental equilibrium, then there's an opportunity to use these compounds in research type settings to then solve some of the world's most pressing problems like mm -hmm. climate change and our relationship to nature and other societal challenges. And I'm not impatient for that because I recognize that we need to really address this healing yes. phase first, then learn from that societally. And maybe that will be in five years, maybe it'll be in 15 years. But I do think that within the near-term life time we have, we'll then start to see psychedelics used for the expansion piece as a society. Meanwhile, many people, many individuals are already there. They're all, we're already using psychedelics to solve problems, to think about the world in new ways. And that brings us back to why I feel ketamine is very important. Ketamine is being used to address major depressive disorder for the most part in the medical ecosystem, but many individuals are using it to, to find analogous relationships between different problems in life to then find novel solutions. And it's fascinating to me that's already available to us. It's just not necessarily recognized as much in the sort of in society or certainly in the legal frameworks around ketamine and other compounds. Yes, I think we're just at the beginning of this healing journey with ketamine and many other compounds. We're very fortunate that ketamine, at least in the US and some other countries around the world, is available legally in a clinical setting. And thank you for your perspective, David. And I love what you said about the healing, the learning, and the expanding. That is really beautiful. And I'm also very hopeful, as you are, that not only the broad public acceptance and embracing of these compounds, but also the legalization will proceed to make these medicines accept Success, not only acceptable, but accessible in most parts of the world within our lifetime. With regard yes. to Maya and your work, for people who'd like to learn more about the company, more about you, and who'd like to reach out, how and where can they do so? Thank you. The best starting point is mayahealth.com. That's M-A-Y-A health.com. And we have our links to various social groups there. We have some great content on our Facebook group, especially, or our Facebook page, especially. And we also invite anyone who is working as a psychedelic practitioner or integration coach, or even a therapist, clinician, or coach who's interested in psychedelics professionally to join our Facebook group. And I think the link to that can be found through the website. Maybe we can post that in the show notes as well as well as our LinkedIn group, which is not necessarily psychedelic focused, but more focused on novel mental health treatments and other modalities that surround psychedelics often. A good example is the stellate ganglion block approach, which is often combined with ketamine infusion. And so we welcome professional dialogue with the community through those two channels. 
and we put some really interesting new content out through those various pages, hopefully to engage and inspire the audience. And we're always here for for the conversation. If there's anyone in your audience who would like to get in touch, my email is david at mayahealth.com. Excellent, David. Thank you so much for making all this information accessible on all these different platforms. And thank you so much for the work you do. It is very important work that will help make this healing journey of humanity a much better one and also help accelerate it. It was a true pleasure to connect with you today. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us on Gateway Sessions, David. Thank you so much, Ariane. This is a real pleasure. I'm uh, very glad that we've been able to form this connection. And again, I'm here with my team to support the work you're doing with your team as well. And thank you so much to everyone for hearing a little of our story. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.